All right, so uh, where should we start? Well, let's start here. Here's a picture of a rat. Uh, that's a rat. And then here's another picture. This is a rat in a hat. Uh, no particular reason. I just thought it was funny, and I wanted to do a Dr. Seuss thing uh, to start. But I do want to ask the question. You should take that down. I'm very distracted by it. Okay, uh, so uh, I do want to start with this. What can we learn about ourselves from rats? That's where we want to kind of jump off. Bruce Alexander was, uh, is a professor of psychology in Vancouver, and he carried out uh, some incredible experiments. He, he's, he began with a baseline idea that, that many of us have, that addiction is mostly about being hooked to a chemical. Like, that's, that's where addiction comes from. That's kind of the baseline idea, and that baseline idea comes partly from a series of experiments that happened in the early 20th century. And the experiments were actually really simple. You get a rat, and you put it in a cage, and then you give it two water bottles. One is just water, it's a water bottle with water in it. One is laced with cocaine, which is, this is messed up, but this is, this is what they studied. And if you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drug water and almost always will overdose on the drug water. So there you go, that's how it works, that's how addiction works, right? But in the 1970s, Professor Alexander comes along and he looks at the experiments and he noticed something maybe a flaw in it. He says, well, we're putting these rats in empty cages. They've got nothing to do except the drug, so let's try something different. So Professor Alexander built a cage that he called Rat Park. There's a really interesting TED Talk about this, by the way, uh, by Johan Hari, if you want to look it up, if you're into that. But Rat Park was basically heaven for rats. Uh, there were lots of rats. They put a lot of rats in this cage. There was cheese and tunnels, and they could create lots of friends and, and social relationships. Even problem-solving teams were starting to develop. And then they put both water bottles in, the, the normal water, the drug water, uh, and, and, then, and then something happened. Are you still with me? This, this is important, I promise, right? This fascinating thing happened. In Rat Park, none of the rats chose the drug water. Almost none of them ever used it. None of them used it uh, compulsively. None of them ever overdosed. And so you went from 100% overdose in isolation, when there was isolation, and 0% overdose when they're happy and connected and helpful relationships. There's another professor. His name is Peter Cohen. Uh, he's in the Netherlands. He says we actually probably shouldn't even call it addiction. We should probably call it bonding. Because human beings have a natural and innate uh, desire and need to bond. And when we're happy and healthy, we'll bond with each other in happy and healthy ways. But when we don't have that, when we don't have that ability, either because we've been traumatized or isolated or beaten down by life, we'll bond with something that will give us a sense of relief instead. So that might be gambling. It might be pornography. It might be a uh, hobby. It might even be our work. We could bond with that and connect with that because connecting is who we are. That's what we need. We need bonding. We need connection. Another professor uh, at the University of Chicago, John Cassiopo, studies loneliness, which if you think about it is like the saddest thing to study. Um, I wonder if he does it alone. That would be even more sad. But anyway, uh, so he studies loneliness, and strictly speaking, in his research, uh, from a health standpoint, being lonely is similar to smoking 15 cigarettes a day from a strictly health standpoint. He said being lonely releases as much stress hormone cortisol as being punched in the face by a stranger, uh, which is an odd comparison and also something he had to study, right? So just kind of think about that for a minute. But it's very telling all the same. Like that, that's jarring and stressful. One more just for good measure. Dr. Sam Everington is a doctor in England. 
And uh, like many, he would see patients that were suffering symptoms of anxiety and, and depression. And he had no problem with chemical solutions, antidepressants that help. And so he would prescribe those, but he had really surprising uh, results, surprisingly good results when he coupled uh, the antidepressants with another thing, with prescribing a group. So the drugs, but also the, the group, right? And the group wasn't an anxiety and depression group. It was actually a gardening club. And so he would have people, uh, he was like, here's your prescription, uh, th this medication, but also be a part of this group. And so they just got their hands dirty together and they worked together and they started to build a kind of tribe over time. And then they started to help each other. There was someone in the group who was homeless, which you could imagine would lead to all types of anxiety and isolation and, and, and possibly depression. And so the people in the group started to seek solutions, not for themselves, but actually for him. And they found him a home and a place to stay. And every single person in that group saw signs of reduced anxiety and reduced depression. It didn't cure everything, but being in, the, in a group, what we would call in the church community, and working together towards something, what we would call mission, led to help, actual health for these people. So we need community. Rats know it, but we have this way of potentially forgetting, at least I do. I, I forget that I need it. It seems like this really nice additional thing in life. It's like I got my own things going and I've got my boxes that I'm taking off and if I can add deep, meaningful relationships and community to that, then all the better. That's wonderful, but, but it's kind of a, an add as needed thing. But, but we need community. God made us for it. If you look at the scriptures, if you look at the Bible, you open it up, the movement of the whole Bible from the fall. The fall is where people first walked away from God. God had a plan and a purpose for people, and they were in right relationship, and people chose something else. They said, no, 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 actually, we'll, we'll do this other thing. We'll choose this other way. We, we, we want to go a different way than you, uh, which led to what? They hid from each other, isolation, because that's what moving from God's plan does. It creates uh, division, which leads to shame, which leads to more isolation. Right? So from that moment of the first fall, way back in the beginning of Genesis, all the way through the Old Testament to the coming of Jesus, coming to us, coming for us, the church coming to life, all the way to the end in Revelation when God sets everything right. And the picture we get of God setting everything right is in Revelation 9. You have every tribe and tongue and nation, people from every tribe and tongue and nation in a big circle. And they're looking toward the center of the circle. And in the center of this circle is a throne. And Jesus is on that throne. And we're all doing what we're made to do, which is worship God together. The movement is isolation to community. That's the movement. That's the way of things for God. So this is a big deal to God. We need community. Science tells us this. The Bible tells us this. And our own longing tells us this as well. But an important question is, what type of community do we need? In the series, we're looking at the first church, the people who in Acts 17, it said, turned the world upside down. We're looking at who they were and how they lived and how that can guide us today. And so this morning, we're going to look at how these people lived in community and how that community turned the world upside down in love and what that looks like for us today. As I said last week, uh, I spent a, a little bit of time in rural Kentucky at my in-laws' cabin there and uh, this summer on vacation. And you can imagine that I brought back more than just one story from last week. I have multiple stories. So uh, let me share another one with you. While, I, while we were there, I had a chance to play golf with my brothers-in-law and my father-in-law, which sounds nice. And in some ways it is because I really love being with them. Uh, but in other ways, because I'm convinced that golf is a sport invented by the devil himself, <laughs> it wasn't that awesome. 
And so uh, every, every shot that I took that day went to the right. Some were like tragically to the right. It's like, oh, there's $2 or however much a golf ball costs. And then some of them were like, well, it was kind of close, but it was up. But everything was to the right, which I hear is common for people that are terrible, like compared to terrible at golf, like, like yours truly. So, um, so everything was to the right, but there's a way of saying this in rural Kentucky and really throughout the Midwest when you know, you're consistently to the right, they're like, oh, your towards is off which is not an English sentence, uh, but it is a sentence there, like your towards is off, your direction is off, you're not headed toward the right thing, your towards is off. So my towards was off all day. I wasn't moving in the right direction. It wasn't that I wasn't having some level of success. Uh, it wasn't that I was kind of moving close to the right, but it wasn't the right direction. As we live as the church in community, this thing that we need, it's important that we're headed in the right direction because we can pursue community and just head off on the wrong direction and not actually have it be the thing that we need. And so what do we need? Jesus actually gives us the answer to this. He tells us where we should head. He tells us where, where, what direction we should head. In Matthew 22, someone comes to Jesus and says, uh, hey, is there, is there a, a, a summary of the Bible? Is there like a Cliff's Notes version of what God wants from us and what, what he has for us and how to live the life that he's created us for? Is there like a shortened version of that? And Jesus is like, yeah, actually there is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as, as yourself. So everything you do, everything you say, every, every thought you have should be in line with that. Jesus is saying that's the bullseye of life. So if you imagine a, a big dartboard, that's the bullseye. Love God, love people. Look up to God, look out for others. Love God, love people. Look up, look out. That's the bullseye. And so if, you're, uh, if you have a, a big decision ahead of you, some of you walked in, you've got big decisions ahead of you, and you're like, I don't know how to make this. Everything seems like a good idea. Set that bullseye up and say, does this get me closer to or further away from the bullseye? And if it gets you closer, say yes. And if it gets you further away, say no. It works for small decisions as well. But that's the direction. Love God, love people, look up, look out. So we learn from the rats we need community. And to find the community we, that we need to, to move in the right direction, we have to look up and look out. So let's see how the first church did that and, and how that might inform how we do. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. It's in your bulletin. If you've got a Bible app, you can pull that out. If you've got your Bible, you can pull that out. Or you can just listen along as well. Verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It all started with looking up. This was a learning church. This first church, it was a learning church. More than it was a teaching church. I know that the scriptures say they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, but the burden wasn't primarily on the apostles' teaching. It was on the followers of Jesus' learning. And so this was a teaching truth and a learning truth church. But it wasn't a school. And that's important. It's important that we recognize that the church wasn't a school. It was a community. It was koinonia in the Greek. It was a fellowship. And it orbited around what they shared. 
That's what all communities do. Every community you've ever experienced uh, it orbits around what you share. So some, it may be a neighborhood, maybe a, a kind of a neighborhood. You're like, yeah, I'm part of this community. I'm part of Waterford or what, you know, whatever it is. That's my community. Maybe it's a business. Maybe you're part of a business community. Maybe a political affiliation. Some of those are held very, very deeply. That's my, that's my community. You know, those are my people. Maybe a medical issue can create a, a community, a community of healing, a, co a community of, of, of suffering maybe even. Sports teams can create community as well. Being a fan of a sports team, that can create a, a community. But the church, that community, that, this, orbited around Jesus. Jesus as, as king and Messiah, as Lord and Savior, as the one who frees, but also the one who guides. And so if that's what it's orbiting around, they needed to uh, let their, their, their purposes be focused on that. And so that's what they discussed. That's what they learned about. That's what they focused on is a God who, 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 who created this world in love, who sees every single way we fall short and, and every single way we turn from him yet doesn't turn his back on us. In fact, he comes all the way to us. He sent his son, Jesus, to come into this world so that we could be back in right relationship with him because that's what love does. Love never gives up. And so the more they learned about who God is, it led them to loving others because they started to see everyone the way God does. They got a picture of that. Jesus died once for all. God loves all. And so therefore you see other people differently because of that. When we start to see people the way he sees people, it changes who we are. So this learning for these first followers is what led to community. They learned about who God was, they looked up, and that led to community, they looked out for each other. Looking up and looking out. Looking up leads to looking out, that's the way of it. And it couldn't have been easy. I know we can dismiss this, like, oh, you know, this is Bible times and the Spirit showed up and made it all so easy. And look, they didn't have the kind of complexities we have going on in our day and time. But remember, this is on the heels of Pentecost, just days after Pentecost, where 3,000 people became followers of Jesus because they heard the gospel. And these are people from all over the world who were in Jerusalem at the time. So different languages, different cultures, different colors, different backgrounds, all became followers of Jesus in this very moment. That's what the church is. And this is God undoing something that happened way back in Genesis chapter 11. We got to go back there for a minute. This is important, I promise. So back there, Genesis chapter 11, um, uh, after the flood, after the ark, after Noah, a united humanity, one single humanity working together, decided to build a city. And a city, in the center of it, they wanted to build a tower that would reach all the way to the heavens. It was Tower of Babel, right? And the thinking was, we want to get back to God without God. Ever spend any time doing that? Ever been there for a while? We, we've, all, we've all been there, like trying to get to God or be who God's called us to be, but actually without God. Like, oh, I'll get this figured out and then, and then you know, I'll come bring God back into it. We've all been there, but we can't do it. And they couldn't either. And so as they're building this tower, there's, there's no ingenuity, no cleverness, no charm, no amount of money. No talent can get us or anyone else to God without God. And so they're building this, but the people are scattered in their frustration because they figure out they can't do it. And so then after that scattering, after generation, 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 societies start to develop. Cultures start to develop. People groups start to develop. Languages start to develop and spread out all the way to this moment at Pentecost where the church is born. 
where all these people with all these different languages and cultures as they've developed over time are actually back in Jerusalem. And then God, by his spirit, says to the disciples, now speak in their language. He's undoing the distance. He's undoing the division right there in that moment. And in all these different languages drawing people back to him, which has always been his plan and his purpose and his desire. And it had been so long, and the people have been divided by so much, but God says, I cannot do even that with the gospel. See, there's nothing that can stand in the way of God bringing all people back to himself through the sacrificial death and the victorious resurrection of Jesus. Nothing can stand in the way of that. And so in our time and place, we experience this division. We experience the, like, my people are better than your people. We experience the, like, my way of thinking is the right way, and so if you don't think this way, you should go away. Right? We experience this. That can be undone. Because it was undone. It was undone in the first church. The moment the church came to life, this diverse group of people were brought together in worship around who God is. And here's the thing. It didn't create resentment. And it didn't create hatred inside the group. It, it created joy. They were excited because of what God can do. They're like, man, if God can pull this off, he can literally do anything. It created joy in them. There is something for us to wrestle with here today in this. This thing called the church, it's supposed to be made up of people that are different. It's supposed to. And it's supposed to be made up of people that are different places in their faith. Remember, some of these first people in the church, they were with Jesus. They'd walked with him for three years. They were as close as close gets to Jesus. And there were some that just became followers of Jesus a couple days ago. And they were in one church together. They were brought together and they, and they gathered and they were seeing God do good works, astonishing works. They shared what they had with each other. They were experiencing loving relationship and it was all creating joy. No wonder they were so successful at drawing people in. Who wouldn't want that? So Summit should be a place where someone who's followed Jesus longer than I've been alive can take their next right step following Jesus and sit next to someone who uh, it, it walked in and, and they're in a very different place. Maybe they, they, they don't know if they want to be here. Uh, they're not sure if they get any of this Jesus thing while they take their next right step as well. And that should create joy. The fact that we can do that together, it should create joy for the one uh, that might not be sure if they belong here. Showing up next week, that might be your next right step. And for the one that has faithfully followed Jesus wholeheartedly for years, your next right step following Jesus might be welcoming them back. The church gladly welcomed people who spoke differently, who ate differently, who had different customs, that were different places in, in their faith, not because it was easy, but because in that moment there was this crystal clarity that what united them was far stronger than anything that could possibly divide them. Culture, language, background, race, color, all secondary. It all just seemed uh, trivial compared to a Jesus who died once and for all. Looking up to who God is led to looking out and caring for others. Looking up led to looking out. And it's important to remember, as we've done through this series, as we'll continue to do, that this isn't the end of the church. Acts chapter two isn't the end, that's the beginning. We get to be a part of the continuum. And so as you read Acts, you see people continuing to, to dedicate themselves to, to pursuing this bullseye of life, of loving God and loving people. In Acts chapter 11, 
The church is in Antioch. And that's where it says they were first called Christians at Antioch. And we might want to, like, why? Like, why were they first called Christians at Antioch? They've been following, people have been following Jesus longer than that. Why first Christians there? Well, Luke gives us some clues to that. Here's how he describes the makeup of the church. There were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Luke's told us a little bit about some of those names before, but here kind of clarifies a couple of other things. He gives not only name, but ethnicity as well. One of the leaders was from sub-Saharan West Africa. One of the leaders was from the northern coast of Africa, and today, uh, what, is, what is Libya? One was a Jewish man of privileged upbringing. One was a Roman citizen. Diverse leadership, diverse backgrounds, different socioeconomics, different races, different colors united. And we also learn at Antioch, this is the first place that they took up an offering, not just for those in their own community, actually for those like far off. They were like, there are people in need outside of our own community, so let's care for them well. And they were first called Christians at Antioch. I think the world noticed that they were different on purpose. And I think the world would notice today if we pursued this kind of what you might call inconvenient unity. And there's no doubt this, this fellowship of inconvenient unity took work. But the work was consistently looking up again and again and again. Looks, let's look up again and again and again to who God is and have that guide us. So they... We go back to Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves not just to the teaching of God's word of salvation for all, not just being together, though those things are very important, but they also did a couple of other things as well. They regularly met together for the breaking of bread and prayer. Certainly they ate together in, gener in general, which is like, would have been radical in that day that all these different types of people would have been together just sharing a table. Culturally, that would have been profound. But, but this is almost certainly referring to communion. The rhythm of sharing communion together, sharing uh, the, the meal where we remember the sacrifice of Jesus, that was the glue for them. And so that's why we do that regularly as well. We'll share communion together next week. I want to invite you to be a part of that with us. They devoted themselves to that. And they also devoted themselves to prayer. And in those prayers, they remembered with gratitude what God was up to. They just remembered like, man, look at, just imagine. what They stopped long enough to remember what God was up to and the powerful thing he had done in bringing them together and what he wanted to show through them in the world. That's what their prayer life was about. And the thing is, there is nothing in the ancient world that can, that, that can be found that can rival this. You can, you can pour through history books of different gatherings, different, different clubs, different communities of the ancient world. Nothing was like this. There was nothing like coming together for prayer and singing and reading scripture and hearing the truth and being loved even in the midst of being different. The other local religions, the empire uh, worship of Caesar had nothing on this. Michael Green in his book, 30 Years That Changed the World, puts it this way. This form of gathering and worship as a community was much more interesting and edifying than attending a temple to watch a pagan priest pour over chicken entrails. I hope so, uh, but that seems like a really low bar, uh, but it did give me a chance to say entrails in a sermon, so there's a big win for me there. The church wasn't just a group of people gathering together uh, to share a statement of belief or an idea. 
It was a group of people gathered together to live out the implications of that statement of belief. Verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. It's interesting, this uh, having everything in common wasn't, wasn't directly ordered by Jesus. Like Jesus didn't tell his followers through that. At least we don't think he did. We don't have any record of that. And it doesn't seem that the apostles even taught it because we don't have any record of that either. It seems this was a spontaneous, spirit-driven uh, desire to care for each other. It was a like, why wouldn't we kind of thing. And remember, these are people from all over the world, different languages, different cultures, different education levels, different vocational trainings, and they stayed in Jerusalem, right? Which means they were foreigners, which means that led to all kinds of different uh, levels of ability to generate income. Some of them had no ability to generate income at all. And as a practical response to that, it seemed like they, they said, well, we, we can't imagine not being together now based on what we've experienced, based on what Jesus has done for us, that we need to do anything possible to stay together. There's something crucially important in this for us today as well. Their eyes were open to the needs around them and they were willing to sacrifice to help. And we're gonna talk about this more next week in detail, but let me just say this for now. I don't think you can imitate Christ. I don't think you can be a Jesus community in any time or place or culture without looking out for the needs around you and being willing to sacrifice to help. I just don't think you can. As Leith Anderson said in his book, The Jesus Revolution, to lack compassion and action toward those who are needy is to lack loyalty to Jesus and his teaching. And it's unloving and it misses the bullseye. And so this engaging as a community together in this looking up that leads to looking out, looking up and looking out, um, it, it, takes, it takes work. And it's actually similar to what happens when you, go to the, when you go to the gym, right? Like when you lift weights. Like when you go to the gym, what happens? Like you, you, like you lift uh, to, and to actually see growth in, in your muscles, you have to work out to the point of, of muscle failure. You actually have to tear the muscles. You have to work it to failure and then it has a chance as, uh, with rest to, to grow. Love is like a spiritual muscle. If you want to grow in love, if you want to increase your capacity to love, you have to work to the point of failure. You have to stretch. And as you stretch, you actually build greater capacity to love, greater capacity to love your spouse, greater capacity to love your parents, greater capacity to love your kids, greater capacity to love your coworkers, greater capacity to, to love those that are different than you, that think and act and, and look different than you, that come from different places, that have different stories and perspectives. As you stretch for them, your capacity to love them actually grows. So if you stretch to love them and care for them and learn from them and have patience with them and hear them over time, you can look back and say, wow, my, my capacity to love them actually grew over time as I stretched in love. And so this process of looking up and looking out might mean we have to stretch, but when it happens, when you see people stretching in love, it's a beautiful thing. Some of you know I have an infatuation with Mr. Rogers, and I know a lot of people uh, are talking about Mr. Rogers right now because there's a movie coming out with Tom Hanks and all that, um, but I've been reading his, his biography for a while and loved the show growing up, but I think the way that he was bold and courageous in kindness um, and how he looked out for people, 
uh, was really profound and really challenging. And, uh, and the fact that he did it through a children's show that, that uh, was all about seeing people and hearing people and giving healthy ways to deal with feelings, I think was, was a really amazing thing. One of my favorite stories is in the wake of the Martin Luther King Jr. assassination, Mr. Rogers introduced a new character onto his show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And the new character was uh, Police Officer Clemens. Police Officer Clemens became the first reoccurring black character on a children's show in American history. A year after the character Officer Clemens was introduced onto the show, a terrible event happened in the U.S. Uh, they got a lot of publicity. Uh, someone dumped bleach into a pool, massive amounts of bleach into a pool where black people were s swimming as a sign that they weren't welcome there in that public space. And so in, in subtle response to this, Mr. Rogers on his show decided, it was set in the summer, and decided it was so hot that he was gonna cool off at a pool. And so he has this kiddie pool and he takes his shoes off and he's using a little hose to spray his feet to cool off and Officer Clemens happened by. And Mr. Rogers invites him to cool off in the pool with him and Officer Clemens responds, oh, I, I, I can't, I don't have a towel. And Mr. Rogers looks at Officer Clemens, he looks at the camera and he looks back at Officer Clemens and he says, don't worry, we can share. And so Officer Clemens sits down takes his shoes off, and Mr. Rogers goes on to wash his feet as a clear sign of love and unity, but also as a clear response to Jesus' own words that in love you should wash the feet of your neighbors. He looked out, he saw need, and he stretched to love. I think it's amazing. So maybe this kind of love and unity is a sign and wonder that God wants to do in our time and place in history. The question is, do we want it? Like, do we actually want that to happen? Do we want to grow in love, or do we see ourselves as like, you know what, I'm, I'm pretty good. Like, I'm pretty strong in love. I'm good enough kind of right where I am. But I want to challenge you. There is a world of hopeless, isolated, hurting people out there. And honestly, let's be real, maybe in here as well, that could really benefit from you growing in your capacity to love. That's why we care so much about people connecting in Christ-centered relationships around here. That's why we talk about things like Summit Connect groups, groups of a dozen or so people that commit to learn and serve and worship together, that commit to look up and look out over and over again, over and over again, look up, look out, because we need it. And there's a world out there that might just dare to believe they do too if we live it. And look, I know you don't need more friends. I get it. You don't. And I know you have limited time, and I know you're just getting your, your kids off to school, and you're like, oh, Summit Connect. I, I don't have time for a small group. I don't have time to, to give to this type of thing. I know that. But the world is noisy, and it's loud, and it moves fast, and it pulls you in a thousand different directions. I know you don't need more friends, but you do need people that love Jesus and at least like you that can pour into your life. This isn't just about personal growth and development. This is about mission. Hebrews 10, spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Encourage each other to look up and look out. I know I need that. 
I need that from you. I need you to encourage me to look up and look out over and over again because I know that, that I become less alive, less whole when I'm not challenged to do that. I know that I will default to choosing lesser things if you don't challenge me to that. I need it. We all do. God made us for community and mission. That's actually the seedbed of community. When people are on mission together, they realize they need each other and relationships get formed around a common purpose when we look up and look out together. And so if you're not in one of these groups, if you're not in a group like this, a group of people committed to learn and serve and worship together, if you're not in a Summit Connect group, I can't encourage you enough to get in one Look for one. It's really easy to do. Out at the info booth, uh, right beside that, there's a thing that says resources. It's a resource center. There's books. But right under that, there's iPads. Those iPads are always on, and they're always just default. You just touch them, and they're defaulted to groups that are open, ready to receive you. And so there are groups that are ready to, like, come on, join us. We'd love for you to be a part of us. And the other thing is, I know we've had some gaps. Let me just kind of say this. I know we've had some gaps in what groups we've had to offer, particularly college groups and just that post-college group. Uh, time. I know we've had gaps, and so we've asked some really awesome people, will you step up and say, I'll lead one of those groups? And we've had people that have said yes. And so if you're in that, that group, if you're college age or just post-college, and you're like, man, I want to get in community, we have groups for you. And so you can check out the iPads. There's also cards out there you can fill out, like, hey, here's the type of group I'm looking for. And we will literally hold your hand through the process, figuratively, unless you want us to hold your hand. Um, we, will, we would do it then, too. But, um, but we'll hold your hand through that process of, of getting into a group. It's worth it. There are women's groups starting up for the fall. There are a great men's group that meets on Monday night. Finding space to be in Christ-centered community matters because you need it. And that's as an individual. As a community, we need to pursue this as well. We need to encourage each other toward loves and, and good deeds uh, as well. This is the heart of multi-site. You are sitting in a space that is a response to this very call of the church. I'll never forget how this started. In September of 2009, uh, we were one church in one location over at the Herndon campus, and we were growing, and we were out of space in Sunday morning. We were out of children's ministry space. We were out of parking spaces, and we said, we don't want brick and mortar to limit our ability to reach people with the gospel. And so we could have built a bigger building, which there's nothing wrong with that. Lots of churches do that. But when we looked at the scriptures, when we looked up to who God was, we saw Jesus going to people where they are to help them know they matter to God. And we said, we should try that. And so that's why we decided to become a multi-site church. And then, because we were too young to know we weren't supposed to do this, we stood up in front of the church and we said, hey, um, we're going to be a multi-site church now, and we're going to launch a church in, in Waterford. And so if you live closer to Waterford than you do the Herndon campus, you have a new church. Yay! And 32 people said we're in, which is crazy, because we didn't know anything about anything. And uh, they trusted us, and so we had 32 people. And then we were going to have some team meetings, right? We were going to talk about uh, how we were going to form this and, uh, and I remember praying. I was like, God, if you would bring 50 people to this meeting, I know we can turn the world upside down in love in Waterford with 50 people. If you bring 50 people, you know, because I was like, he's going to multiply. He's going to do great big things. We have 32. He can bring, you know, 18 more. Uh, he's God. He can do anything. And so uh, I was like, 50 people. So I set out 50 chairs because I'm bold and courageous. And, uh, and so uh, 50 people showed up, and then it was 75, and then it was 100, and people just kept coming, and then it was, a, it was 125, and then it was 150. But none of that, none of the numbers is why I knew God was in this and that we were headed the right direction. That's not what it was. It wasn't the numbers. It was when the 51st person walked through that door, the first 50 stood up out of those chairs and created space for other people. 
they gave their chairs away and they, they scurried to try and find other chairs. And I, I don't know, there were people like in the dumpster trying to find chairs. I don't know what was going on. It was crazy. Uh, but, but they were just like, let's create more space for more people. Let's do that. Because creating space for others matters. And being a church that makes room for others matters. It did for the first church and it does for us now. And so that's why we'll continue to do that. We'll continue to go to people where they are to help them know that they matter to God. I heard a stat this week. 90% of people in our community don't have a connection to the church. 90% of people that you come in contact with at at Publix and in your workplace, they don't have any connection to the church. 90% of people don't have what they need. And so if you read the last Summit magazine, we're going to continue to be a multi-site church. We're going to do it a little differently than we have in the past, but we're going to continue to do that. Uh, We're hoping that there are people, hoping you, at some point will say, you know what, I want an expression of Summit in my neighborhood. That's what, and, and you've got existing campuses that are ready to support you and cheer you on and be with you and equip you in that process. God isn't finished. Not until everyone is who they should be and how they should be. And until then, we're going to continue to try to reach people with hope and with the truth of the gospel. We should be a church that looks out, which means we have to be a church that never closes our doors. This scripture, verse 47, it ends this way. The Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. I love how Luke gives all the credit to Jesus. He's like, we were just doing our thing, and the Lord kept adding to our number. He was like, this is God's deal. The growth stuff, that's, that's God's deal. It's not our deal. But keeping the doors open could be our deal. We have to be a people that don't say, like when we get here and we look around and go, things are going this is pretty good, right? There's probably enough gospel for enough people. I have my seat. Everybody's happy. We're fine, right? We can't be that type of people. The first church could have almost reasonably said 3,000 people in one day. We don't have any idea what we're doing. Close the doors. Let's get ourselves together. Don't let anybody else in until we figure this thing out. But they didn't. They kept looking up. And every time they looked up, they saw a God who said, I'm here for everyone. And I want everyone to come to saving grace. We're not finished yet. That's what they saw when they looked up. And so they kept looking out for ways to care for people and to love others, and to keep the doors open for people to come home. Do you want to know what I think is one of the most subtly profound things that happens here every Sunday? About 30 minutes before we start service, people start coming through those doors, and they're volunteers. Volunteers back in base camp, or our hospitality team, our, our baristas, they show up early, which is not an easy thing. That's why the, the coffee guy, he's the hero of this whole operation, right? Dave Dickens. He's the hero because people show up early. Why do they do that? Because every single person that walks through these doors on a Sunday deserves a look in the eye, a smile, a handshake, a bulletin handed to them, a cup of coffee made for them. And if they have kids, volunteers back in base camp who will love their kids and care for them well and tell them they matter to God. Every single person deserves that because every single person matters. You know, if you keep the doors open, you start to see that Jesus isn't done. I was thinking about this the other day, guys. I've been on staff 10 years. And every day has been humbling. It's, it's like hard to call it work because it's amazing to see what God does. But I was actually thinking about it. In 10 years, I have been in the water 
the 600 people that have been baptized, take their, taking that step of making their faith in Jesus public, 600 people. There are people that are more faithful than I will ever be that don't get to see those types of things in their lives. I am blessed beyond my merit. But that's just proof that God's not finished. He's not done. See, the only reason to keep doors on a church is if you can open them. God's not done with with changing lives. He's not done with fellowship. He's not done with inconvenient unity that makes a difference in this world and should produce joy in us. He isn't finished with that. God is still calling us to form biblically functioning communities that reach lost people and connect in Christ-centered relationships and teach truth and serve others and worship God. That's the vision of Summit Church, and that's God's vision for his church, and he's not done with it yet. He's still calling us to turn the world upside down in love by how we live in community, by how we pursue the bullseye of life together, by how we love God and love people, by how we look up and look out. And here's the deal. We need it. We need community that does that, and the world is made better as we pursue it. So let's pray for it. Father God, thank you for your challenge. Thank you for the clarity that comes from looking at your first church. Thank you that you're not asking us to do every single thing in the exact same way, but you are calling us to be a people who look up to who you are, recognizing we need you to get to you. And as a result of seeing who you are in your great love, you ask us to look out because that's what you did. Though you were above us, you came down, you descended to us to give everything for our sake so that we might be made right with you, be in community and in fellowship with you. God, let us imitate you in how we live. God, thank you for the doors that are on this place. Thank you for this place. Thank you that we get to gather here, but I pray we wouldn't lose sight of the best use of those doors being that we throw them open and invite in. And that as we experience community, inconvenient unity with each other, we wouldn't resent it, we wouldn't harbor bitterness, but it would induce joy because of how big and good you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.